So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful and undeserving of your great love and mercy, the privilege of knowing you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, of knowing your last warning message to this uh, world, Lord, that so desperately needs to hear it. And Lord, I pray this evening that the Spirit of God would be with each one of the viewers and listeners, that you would help my frail words to communicate the truth that it's your desire that we hear and learn tonight. Father, again, we thank you for the Sabbath hours, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to receive the fullness of the blessing of the Sabbath in our time with you. For we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wanted to start with a, a brief introduction uh, for those who don't knew, know who I am. I, I mentioned I've been to uh, Advent Hope a number of times. I did the restoration in 2013, uh, but uh, Dinda had already shared that for those who don't know me, my name is Mark Howard. I work with the Michigan Conference currently as the associate in the Sabbath School and Personal Ministries Department, and I work with Ka uh, Pastor Cameron DeVazier. He's a director of that department. Um, some of you I know are familiar with our Talking Points uh, program that we have been doing for the purpose of helping people to uh, better cover their adult Sabbath school lessons. Um, at any rate, that's the department I work in. We are also associated with that department is the Emanuel Institute. I've been the director of the Emanuel Institute now since 2009, which is a lay training uh, arm, if you will, of the Michigan Conference and has been pulled into the Sabbath School and Personal Ministries Department. And um, I didn't mention I'm a minister, uh, have 20 years uh, of experience now in uh, pastoral ministry in the Seventh Adventist Church. I am married uh, 34 years as of this last May to my wife, Stephanie. I have two children. I have a son, Caleb. Caleb just started law school a week ago in Chattanooga. Well, he's not, he started it in Chattanooga, but he's taking the classes online from a school in Alabama. So uh, such as, I guess, the new normal. And then I have a daughter, Annalise. She is a senior this year in Great Lakes Adventist Academy. Um, as for myself, I was raised in the Adventist church, but I, my mother and father were, were first generation Seventh-day Adventist, and they received Bible studies, actually, when they were newlyweds and became Seventh-day Adventist. My mother got divorced and remarried, and my mother and my stepfather left the Seventh-day Adventist church when I was 15 years old. And I didn't give my heart to the Lord until I was 26 years old. Um, I was baptized April 2, 1994. I was not baptized as a Seventh-day Adventist, but I was baptized by a Seventh-day Adventist minister, kind of a long story, but I just refused to agree to what Seventh-day Adventist church taught. To date, I was never, I have never been baptized as a Seventh-day Adventist. I was, um, I joined the Seventh-day Adventist church on profession of faith in 1996. All of that fits in a little bit with where we're going to go this weekend, but that's a little back history on me. And now I want to give a little bit of history on what we're looking at this evening. Uh, LGT stands for Last Generation Theology. And in February of 2016, I presented a series at Advent Hope on in which I touched there were going to be three topics and ended up being two because it took two parts to cover the nature, the human nature of Christ 
and I covered the human nature of Christ and last generation. Well, what I called it was it's time someone finally told you the truth about the last generation, a little bit of tongue in cheek there. And I covered those two topics. Now, one of the reasons I did that was, first of all, I, I thought I knew the implications of last generation theology, and you're going to hear more of that this evening. Uh, I did not. Um, but what I did know is, and I think probably most of our viewers are familiar with the term now that we use cancel culture. Uh, cancel culture is the term that's being used. You can look it up in the Urban Dictionary and dictionary.com. Basically, we cancel out generally via social media people that we disagree with. So in, in, in other, instead of being a free speech society, if, if somebody's saying something we don't like, we just group up on them and gang up on them and, and bully them into submission and silence. And this has been going on for longer than some of the current you know, secular situation. These subjects of the nature of Christ and last generation theology are subjects that have been um, off limits for discussion for a long time now in the church. And I felt it in my own personal ministry um, to the point where I just shied away from even talking about, discussing about them. And it was in 2016 where I said, this is ridiculous. I can't, uh, you, we can't pretend to be Christians and not be willing to openly study and discuss some things. And so I presented that series in Advent Hope, uh, at Advent Hope in 2016. And um, as for myself, I probably, I don't have an exact time for this, but I probably learned of last generation theology. I mean, heard the term six years ago. It's not something that I was like, oh, last generation theology, that, that's me. I, I, I did know the, 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 um, the origins of it. When I heard it, I knew where people got it from when they started talking about it, because uh, there was a, there's a, a book called uh, The Sanctuary Service written by M.L. Andreessen, and he has a chapter called The Last Generation, which is primarily where that term came from, last generation theology. It was Andreessen's theology. Well, here's the thing. I had formed my own understanding of character perfection in the last days long before I ever knew the name M.L. Andreessen, uh, and it wasn't by people in my church. Uh, when I joined the Adventist church, I told you I was baptized in 1996. I mean, Technically, a Seventh-day Adventist pastor isn't supposed to baptize somebody who doesn't agree with Seventh-day Adventist beliefs. And I was clear, I don't, I don't believe in Ellen White, I don't believe in church's lifestyle standards, I don't believe it. Pastor said, I'll just baptize you into Jesus. Well, um, that's because the church I attended, at the time we called them celebration churches. It's the first church I started going to. They were down on character perfection, overcoming, Adventist lifestyle, Ellen White, all that stuff. They talk very negatively about those things. So, you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, you believe the way you did because somebody got a hold of you and, and brainwashed you. No, it was my own personal study. And I'm going to share some of that tonight and through the weekend that brought me to where I am, what my current understanding with um, I don't want to say last generation theology, and you'll see why in a minute, but I certainly wasn't influenced by my legalistic church full of LGTers in my belief system. I never considered myself an LGT guy until I heard someone describe it as 
the belief that the last generation living on the earth will be total overcomers through the righteousness of Jesus and thus a final demonstration of the power of the gospel. I heard that and I said, hey, that's me. That's what I believe. And I subscribed to that. Um, again, not knowing everything that, that uh, was packaged with it. Uh, now, I don't intend to do a 12-part series right here on uh, to explain all the nuances, but I will share just a few statements that I read in my own study that helped me to come to the conclusions I have. The first one I'm going to share with you, and if you have the notes, you can look along at this, uh, from the book Great Controversy, page 623, paragraph one, it says, not even by a thought could our Savior be brought to yield to the power of temptation. You would expect that for Jesus, not even by a thought. He had kept his father's commandments, and there was no sin in him that Satan could use to his advantage. This is the condition in which those must be found who shall stand in the time of trouble. Now that's, you know, I don't know what people do with that. It's like, oh, you're taking it out of context. You, there's no more context you can get to change the, the plainness of that statement. The time of trouble happens before glorification, before the close of human probation, and it says that as Jesus didn't sin even in a thought, this is going to be the condition of God's people that lived through the time of trouble, okay? That was written in 1911, and I'm going to note that all these, I'm just sharing four statements here, all of them written after 1888. I say that because there are people in the church today who say, well, Ellen White changed her theology after 1888, and so all that behaviorally centered stuff that came before changed after it, so I've taken all the statements after 1888, just to be clear. She didn't change her theology, but if somebody wants to make that claim, these all came after that time period. Now, here's a similar statement to what we just read from Great Controversy. This one is from Desire of Ages, page 123, paragraph 3. This was written in 1898. Ellen White says, there was in Christ nothing that responded to Satan's sophistry. It's almost the same statement um, in, as we read in Great Controversy. He did not consent to sin, not even by a thought did he yield to temptation. So it may be with us. So both statements, Jesus didn't sin even in a thought. This is possible for us. That's what it says. She continues to tell us how. She says, Christ's humanity was united with divinity. He was fitted for the conflict by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he came to make us partakers of the divine nature. So long as we are united to him by faith, sin has no more dominion over us. God reaches for the hand of faith in us to direct it to lay fast hold upon the divinity of Christ that we may attain to perfection of character. Okay, Full, uh, there's a lot in that statement, but you get the gist of it. Again, not even in a thought did Jesus sin, so it may be with us. From the Review and Herald of March 10, 1904, Ellen White wrote, he who has not sufficient faith in Christ to believe that he, Christ, can keep him, the sinner, from sinning. So I'm going to read it again. He who has not sufficient faith in Christ to believe that he can keep him from sinning has not the faith that will give him an entrance into the kingdom of God. Okay, that's pretty plain. And again, uh, and that was from 1904. And then the final one, again, from Desire of Ages, page 1898. And this goes a step further in the idea of the lives of God's people having a bearing upon um, the vindication of God, if you will, for lack of, of another expression. This is what it says. Desire of Ages 671 says, 
the Savior came to glorify the Father by the demonstration of his love. So the Spirit was to glorify Christ by revealing his grace to the world. The very image of God is to be reproduced in humanity. Now, just in this, uh, I could do a whole sermon on this, but humanity isn't reproducing the image. <laughs> this is God reproducing his image in humanity. And then it finishes by saying this, the honor of God, the honor of Christ is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. Now, there's a tie in there. And again, these were things I read long before I had heard of LGT last generation, ML Andreessen or anything else. And they helped me to come to the understanding I have, which I'm gonna expound on further. Now, some of you are saying right now, wait a minute, I thought you were gonna recant LGT and it sounds like you're supporting LGT. And I guess it depends on what LGT means uh, to you. And this is the problem we come into. You have to understand that you get into trouble when you start labeling things. Because let me give you, for instance, soul sleep. I don't know if you've heard the term before, soul sleep. But some people will say that. I've had people say that to me. It's like, oh, you're Seventh-day Adventist. You believe in soul sleep. No, I don't believe in soul sleep. Because to a person who believes in soul sleep, they believe that we have a separate body and soul. The soul is something that lives on without the body. But instead of being alive when you die, the soul sleeps. I don't believe that. I believe we are a soul, not that we have a soul. But if I were to say, yeah, pretty much I believe in soul sleep, I've just subscribed to something I don't even believe in. And that's the challenge you get into with labels. People label things oftentimes to get you roped into something that you don't know what you're saying yes to. So at this point, you might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought the title of this sermon was LGD or recantation. Hold on, here it comes. In uh, 2018, this is two years after I presented my messages at uh, Advent Hope, there was a coordinated attack on last generation theology. Um, there was a book released by the Seventh-day Adventist Seminary, uh, edit, edited by Yuri Mascala, called God's Character in the Last Generation. I've read the book. Um, it's written by several different authors. I've read some of the chapters numerous times. Um, it's, it's the seminary's attempt to shut down last generation theology thinking as they understand it. And then another book that came out at the very same time was from well-known church historian George Knight called End Time Events and the Last Generation, for the, written for the same purpose. Uh, there have been numerous articles since then, all um, attempting to show the, 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 the foolishness of last generation theology. And I admit, if last generation theology is what I've read in those articles, it is very foolish. Uh, in reading through these materials, it's become increasingly evident that what is described in these books and articles is something I don't believe and something I've never believed. So in light of what I've said already and what I'm about to say, I publicly recant any association with last generation theology. If you want to know what I believe about something, don't stick a label on me and say he believes that, because I probably don't. For the remainder of this message, I'm going to give you several examples of what I don't believe. And then tomorrow, I'm going to provide biblical evidence for what I do believe. 
and why I'm afraid there are some key components of our faith that are being overlooked or ignored um, that could be detrimental to our personal faith and our movement. So what I want to do for the remainder of this message is I want to pick up a particular article that I had read. Um, one of the articles I appreciated the most, actually, was there was a series of 13 articles written by a young lady who's a PhD student in systematic theology at um, the SDA Theological Seminary at Andrews, and written for Compass Magazine. And uh, as I've mentioned, 13 parts on last generation theology. I felt the author did a commendable job in concisely summarizing and articulating basically what she was taught at the seminary. Um, I'm going to tell you that there are things I've read, for example, in the book God's Character, which is a treatise from the seminary, that simply some things are, some points are strained and some points are just outright not true. And I, I don't know how else to say it. And because of our cancel culture theology, um, the way we're doing now, listen, if you want to promote your viewpoint, it's real easy if you can shut down everybody else's microphone. <laughs> and it's just like, you're going to just hear from me now. And there's been a shift in the seminary in, in the past decade. Many of the people who had differing viewpoints have died off. And so the seminary kind of regrouped and they put out this book and this is where we stand. And at any rate, um, in this particular article or series of articles, there, it summarizes this uh, um, last generation theology. And the final article, article number 13, was a, um, again, a, a summary. And in that article, the author began with a five-point summary of the underlying pillars of, if you will, of last generation theology. And so that's what I'm going to look at is those five pillars of last generation theology from the article. And again, I think this, this young lady was honest in what she shared. Um, and uh, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll begin with how she launches into her five points. I'm quoting now. Before this, a brief summary of LGT claims would be helpful. The core teaching is that the atonement includes three phases, the death of Jesus on the cross, the intercessory ministry of Jesus, and the vindication of God's character through a final group of believers, the 144,000, who will reach sinlessness, in parentheses, character perfection, before Jesus' return, proving that with God's enabling grace, humans can obey the moral law perfectly. This outlook is backed by the following ideas. Now, I'm not going to break down that, that whole section there. You'll get the gist of it as I go through the five key points. Point number one, these are the foundation pillars that are being identified as the foundation pillars of last generation, what's called last generation theology. Point number one, justification includes sanctification, which means that humans are not only rendered just before God through Christ's merits, but their sanctification slash character perfection is an essential aspect of their salvation. 
um, I don't believe this. And, and there, there are pieces of that that I could agree with, but the idea that justi justification includes sanctification, um, justification is currently being taught in our seminary as an objective only justification. That means it has nothing to do with the Spirit's work in us or any human response that would be subjective. So it has nothing to do with with, with our response, um, which is kind of confusing. So you have the new birth. The, the, the new birth comes when we believe. You know, the Bible's clear about that. So is a person justified before the new birth? Anyway, you get into some, uh, I'm not gonna get into all the details of that, but I'm gonna say that this is the way justification is currently taught is objective only. So any view of justification that views or that includes a subjective element, like me, having faith, <laughs> me believing and then I'm justified, is um, uh, any view of justification that includes a subjective element is thought to be mingling together, merging together justification and sanctification. So no longer are they separate. Okay, this is, this is a current viewpoint being taught. And, and so it's mingling together justification and sanctification, which is said to be contrary to the teaching of the Protestant reformers. Now, this has not always been the case in the Adventist church. You need to be clear on that. In fact, A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner, the men who, according to inspiration, brought to this church the clearest revelation of the subject of righteousness by faith to that time, including the reformers, beyond the reformers, brought to our people that special message in the late 1800s, both Wagner and Jones taught that the word justification means to make righteous, to make righteous. The argument today is that no, it doesn't mean to make righteous. It means to declare righteous and only to declare. It's objective only. And so that the idea of justification making a person righteous is a, um, is it comes right out of the Catholic Council of Trent. That's the claim. It's not historically true. And it's unfortunate. There's an entire chapter on, well, I'm going to get to that in just a moment. Uh, Ellen White makes the same point in the book Steps to Christ. Steps to Christ, page 23. Listen carefully. She asked the question, how shall a man be just with God? How shall the sinner be made righteous? It is only through Christ, etc., etc. And I've just included that first part to make the point of being made righteous. How can a man be just with God? That means justified. That's what it's talking about. And she refers to justification then in the next sentence says being made righteous. That was an Adventist understanding for the longest time, in fact, until the Desmond Ford controversy. I told you I left the church. My mom and my stepdad left the church when I was 15. It was through the Desmond Ford controversy. And um, when I came back in the Adventist church, I made it a point to go and study all the things Ford was saying because I was kind of trying to figure out why mom and dad left the church. And um, at any rate, this idea of objective justification, that, that concept is what drove Ford. And there are theologians today, our theologians, say Ford wasn't wrong on his ideas of the gospel, just the sanctuary. Well, he only gave up the sanctuary because he believed in objective only justification, which ruled out the sanctuary. Uh, the, his whole idea, in fact, 
he understood the gospel as being justification, object of justification only. So anyway, I don't want to get into the weeds of the theology, but I just, this, this may be at the back of this concern that justification includes sanctification, but I don't believe that. So if that's one of the tenets, the pillars of last gener generation theology, I guess you count me out on that one. Now, I will say, I was going to mention this, that this whole controversy over justification and sanctification is very well articulated in a book by the late Anglican minister Jeffrey Paxton called The Shaking of Adventism. And if you can get that book, it's a good read. It's on, you can probably get it on Amazon. I bought one recently on Amazon. I've had my copy forever. And I think I bought one for, for one of the guys in the office. But what's interesting is the, the, the points made in that book were arguing for an objective only justification. One of our theologians, Dr. Irwin Gain, wrote a book review. I have posted that book review, his book review of the shaking of Adventism in that folder that I showed you the link to. And it's like a page and a half or, or two and a half pages, something like that. But what Gain does, Paxton makes, you have to understand this. The points Paxton makes about justification are almost identical to the points being made in the book, God's Character, the present 2018 book from the Seventh-day Adventist Seminary, the chapter on justification is the same theology that Paxton was arguing for and we were fighting against, that Ford was arguing for and we were fighting against. And so when Gain writes his book review, he shows very clearly and he actually quotes from the reformers and shows that the reformers didn't believe in an objective only justification and that the idea of a a, a, an imputed righteousness or a justification that does have an effect on the heart of the, the sinner was not was something that the reformers taught as well as Wagner and Jones and et cetera, et cetera. And I apologize if I'm not making that whole thing as clear because I don't want to get into the, the study of that theology. My point here is just point number one of the pillars of LGT that justification and sanctification are the same is not something I believe. And I can conjecture a little bit as to where that comes from, from reading these materials that I've told you about. I think there's a lot of confusion on the issue. And uh, I would encourage you, get the book God's Character, read Dr. Davidson's chapter on justification, and read Irwin Gaines' rebuttal of Paxton's book, and it will fit hand in glove as a rebuttal to that chapter that Davidson wrote. I'll do respect to Davidson, but it's, it's, uh, uh, there's been a shift in our thinking there. Now, point number two. Foundational point number two, Jesus' human nature included sinful inclinations. For if he is to be our example of complete obedience, he had to be exactly like us. Okay? I don't believe this. <laughs> um, there, there, first of all, the whole idea of sinful inclinations, you would have to have done some study into the nature of Christ to know that there are some very loaded terms uh, you can talk about like passions, sinful passions, evil propensities. And so when you read Jesus' human nature included sinful inclinations, it has that flavor of saying Jesus actually did sin in thought. And it's just, uh, I wouldn't even go there. Jesus' human nature, and, and, I, and I totally believe, you can hear my presentation, it, I think it, I could have done better. But I did that presentation in audio verse. There's two parts to the human nature of Christ. I believe he took our fallen nature, but he didn't sin. In fact, 
uh, I want to share with you something here in a moment. But again, pillar number two that is identified in this series on uh, this summary of LGT, Last Generation Theology, says that one of the tenets is that Jesus' human nature uh, included sinful inclinations and that Jesus had to be exactly like us. Jesus was not exactly like us. Jesus is the divine son of God. He had divinity inside his humanity. We do not. <laughs> and that, and that, that's the whole difference. Uh, so much could be said on that. But I want to share with you an interesting statement. You know, today our church waffles on this. And we say, well, we never had a position on the nature of Christ. That's not true. And this statement makes it very clear. There are other things I could share, but this one statement makes it very clear. I've attached uh, also the file that this statement was taken from. It's a statement, it's a, it's a, it's something uh, that Elder S.N. Haskell wrote to Ellen White about the Holy Flesh movement in Indiana. He went to Indiana, he got, he was observing the Holy, I was gonna say he got involved, he didn't get involved in the Holy Flesh movement, but he was observing the Holy Flesh movement and dialoguing with people about their beliefs, and he wrote back to Ellen White about it, and this is what I'm about to read. Now, this is quoted in um, Ralph Larson's book, The Word Made Flesh, or The Word Was Made Flesh, page 126. I've included that book in a PDF format. Uh, it's a phenomenal book. If you just want our church history on the nature of Christ and more statements from Ellen White and the rest of the pioneers than, than, than you can dream of. Uh, but here's the quote from Haskell, writing to Ellen White. Now, notice what he says to her. When we stated that we believed that Christ was born in fallen humanity, the we being Seventh-day Adventists, he's writing to Ellen White and saying that, you know, what we were telling these people who believe in the Holy Flesh Movement what we believe is Adventists. Now, listen, this is incredible. When we stated that we believe that Christ was born in fallen humanity, they would represent us as believing that Christ sinned notwithstanding the fact that we would state our position so clearly that it would seem as though no one could misunderstand us. Their point of theology in this particular seems to be this. They believe that Christ took Adam's nature before he fell. So he took humanity as it was in the Garden of Eden, and this humanity was holy, and this was the humanity which Christ had. Now that's really phenomenal because it sounds a lot more towards uh, 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 some of the leanings today of theology that we have um, than we had when Ellen White was alive on the human nature of Christ. But we did have a position on that. And yet, in Haskell's statement, he's very clear, we believe Christ was born in fallen humanity, um, but we did not believe he sinned. We would set our position so clearly, we, it would seem as though no one could misunderstand us. Um, he, we never, as a church, never believed he was exactly like us. The key proponents of the nature of Christ, people like Jones and people like Wagner, people like Prescott and, and others, all taught that Jesus was divine and human, not just like us. So um, on number two, I don't believe that key tenet of LGT either. Number three, the number three key tenet of LGT, Last Generation Theology, says humans are born with sinful tendencies, but they do not possess a sinful nature, or at least this sinful nature is not punishable, for we are not directly responsible for it. Uh, there's a little mixed bag in there. Humans are born with sinful tendencies, but they do not possess a sinful nature. That's ridiculous. I do not believe that. 
Scripture's clear, we're born carnal, sold under sin, Romans 7.14. We're alienated from God, dead in trespasses and sins, children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity, Psalm 51.5. And furthermore, if these sins weren't punishable, why did Jesus die on the cross? <laughs> I mean, no human being would have had a punishable sin, and therefore Jesus died for what? So um, the concept no, I don't, I don't agree with that, that human beings are born with sinful tendencies, but they uh, don't possess a sinful nature. And, and then the caveat is added, or at least this nature is not punishable, for we are not directly responsible for it. Now, there's some truth in that. It is true, however, that we do not hold risk. God doesn't hold us responsible for being born. Um, this is why scripture is equally clear that, quote, the soul who sins shall die. The son's the son, pardon me, the son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. That's Ezekiel 18.20. And that the times of our ignorance God overlooked. Those are just saying, as much as we have sinful natures, God does not hold us accountable because we were born in a sinful nature. Um, at the same time, Jesus died for the sin that is in our natures. He died for all humanity. That's what he died for. So, uh, I'm afraid that claims like these come from a misunderstanding of the doctrine of original sin, which says we not only inherit sinful natures from Adam and Eve, but also their guilt. We've never believed that as Adventists historically. Uh, and it's this, it's exactly this type of understanding that Ellen White's addressing when she wrote in Patriarchs and Prophets, for example, page 306, it is inevitable that children should suffer from the consequences of parental wrongdoing but they are not punished for their parents' guilt, except as they participate in their sins. So again, these times of ignorance, again, in Acts 17.30, God overlooks. Doesn't mean it's not sin. It just means God doesn't hold us accountable for it in certain situations. Uh, that's clear, clear from, from scripture and from the writings of Ellen White. So while we are born sinners with sinful natures, God does not hold us accountable for that. Instead, he held Christ accountable for the sin of humanity, which sin he bore and which guilt he bore on the cross. So yes, we are born with sinful natures. So I disagree with point number three. There's some parts in there I can agree with, but, but for the most part, I disagree with it. Point number four says, in the experience of some in our church, including the author of this article, Evidently, she ran into people that believe this way. LGT ideology can be accompanied by the idea that after the close of probation, humans will have to live before God without an intercessor and without the Holy Spirit. Well, without an intercessor, that language, that's taken straight from uh, the writings of Ellen White and indirectly from Daniel chapter 12. But without the Holy Spirit, we'll touch on that in a minute. In other words, their own characters must keep them before God. This also explains why sinlessness is necessary for this group of people. Okay, so general idea of number four, key tenet. Uh, after the close of probation, we're going to have to live without the Holy Spirit. I don't believe this. And frankly, I doubt that many or any who do subscribe to LGD, LGT do either. Um, I, I, I just, I've never really heard somebody say, yeah, that's, that's what I believe, but evidently the author of the article has, and L, evidently it's a, one of the key components of LGT, which I don't agree with. Um, 
At any rate, I believe it stems from a misunderstanding of this following statement from the Great Controversy. Six, page 614, Great Controversy says, when Christ leaves the sanctuary, darkness covers the inhabitants of the earth. In that fearful time, the righteous must live in the sight of a holy God without an intercessor. The restraint which has been upon the wicked is removed and Satan has entire control of the finally impenitent. Uh, apparently this statement has been taken by some to mean that this living without an intercessor means living by our own goodness without the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not what it's saying. It's quickly pointed out by those who uh, uh, disagree with that, that the context says the restraint which has been upon the wicked is removed. And they equate that to the intercessor and say it only applies to the wicked. Uh, but that's not what the statement is saying. And, and the explanation fails, that explanation fails to explain why it would be such a fearful time for the righteous and what a holy God has to do with it. I mean, the language of the statement. But the simple answer is there's a misunderstanding of what this, the, what's being communicated about uh, uh, Christ being our intercessor. And this stems from a almost universal lack of study of the subject of the heavenly sanctuary. The idea being communicated in this statement is that Jesus is doing a work of atonement now as our heavenly high priest. High priest and intercessor, mediator, those are all interchangeable. Jesus is doing a work right now, finishing that last phase of atonement. That's why it was called the day of atonement. You can argue it from now till the cows come home, but what he's doing in the heavenly sanctuary is a part of the atonement, <laughs> the day of atonement. And it's tied together, which I'll talk about later. Um, the idea of atonement, is at onement, okay? And as many of you heard atonement just described that way or pronounced that way, it just makes it easier to understand. Atonement means to take two parties that are estranged and bring them back together and make them one, okay? Jesus is interceding with the Father to complete the atonement. The reason that we are not one with the Father is because something has separated us from the Father. Go to Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, and you'll see what separated from the Father. It's sin. Sin has caused a separation between us and God. So if there's going to be an at the sin that's in the middle has to be removed, okay? The whole idea of overcoming sin, thats it's just a part of the atonement. When the sin is removed, the two become one. And that's what Jesus is seeking to effect in the heavenly sanctuary. He is drawing the two back together. Now, the Bible tells us, the writings of Ellen White tell us, there's going to come a time when Jesus is going to finish that priestly work. In other words, that atonement will be completed. When the atonement is completed, the two estranged parties are now at one. Before the atonement is completed, Jesus intercedes and he's drawing humanity toward God. But listen, folks, when he's completed that work and humanity has been drawn to God like that, he doesn't need to draw anymore. They have been drawn. Do you understand that? And so the idea of, uh, uh, of him leaving the sanctuary means he's finished the work of atonement for everyone who has availed himself or herself of it. And for the rest of the world, there is no longer an intercessor. There is no one pleading with the Father. There's no more forgiveness of sins. 
Okay. Now, as far as the Holy Spirit goes, to say that those who have been at one with God need to live without the Holy Spirit is ludicrous because they're the ones that are filled with the Holy Spirit because they have been completely reunited with God. God dwells in them through the Spirit. It is true that the wicked will be left without the Holy Spirit because when Jesus leaves the heavenly sanctuary, they've never invited the Spirit into their heart and there's no wooing voice to entreat them anymore. That's done. That's why we call it that's why this event that is speaking of when Christ leaves the sanctuary is called the close of human probation. There's no more time for humanity. Every case has been decided. There's no more priest in the sanctuary. There's no more forgiveness of sins. Uh, there will only be two classes of people, those who have received the atonement and are now at one with God, the spirit dwelling within them, and those who have refused to be reconciled to God, the spirit leaving them for he was never admitted an entrance. So point number four, that after the close of probation, God's people are going to have to live without the Holy Spirit and live on their own goodness. I, I, we have no goodness, folks. There is no one good. No, not one. The Bible's clear on that. There's not an ounce of goodness. There's not an ounce of merit. If there's anything good that any of us did, what does it say in the book Steps to Christ? Every right impulse comes from Christ. If you do anything good, and I'm saying from what scripture tells us, from what spirit of prophecy tells us, even the person who's never heard the name of Christ, if they're doing something genuinely good, it's only because of the promptings of the Spirit, because there's nothing good in humanity. In my flesh, Paul said, dwells no good thing. So, no, we're not going to live on our own, on our own goodness uh, after the close of probation. I don't believe that. Finally, number five, sinlessness is possible before our glorification at Christ's second coming. This is the last of the key tenets of last generation theology outlined in the article that those who believe in last generation theology believe that sinlessness is possible before our glorification at Christ's second coming. I don't, and I do believe this, <laughs> okay? I, and I have to clarify, sinlessness is possible. Some view sinlessness in the absolute sense. In other words, even if I were to overcome sin, even if I didn't yield even in a thought, I still have a sinful nature. And because I'm retaining that nature, sin is still clinging to me, even if I don't yield to it. And so I can't be sinless. In that absolute sense, I agree with that. Uh, if sinlessness is viewed in the absolute sense and we're only going to lose our sinful natures, that's glorification. That's what glorification is speaking of. We're only going to lose our sinful natures uh, when this mortal shall put on immortality at the second coming of Christ. I believe that. Uh, we're going to have our sinful natures up until that time, and so no, we will not be uh, completely free from the sinful nature until the second coming of Christ. Others believe that it is impossible to live without sinning as long as we still have our sinful natures. They believe they view our fallen natures as overpowering us to the point of impotence. We have no, we just can't. It doesn't matter how we now. It doesn't matter how much we want to do the right thing. We just can't do it. Right? Read Romans seven. Um, Seventh-day Adventists are notorious for never continuing on into, into Romans 8, which is a, another sermon, I guess. Okay, so others believe that it's impossible to live without sinning as long as we have the sinful natures. The sinful nature is too strong. I don't believe this. The reason God sent his son was to take our penalty for sin and to bring divine strength to our fallen humanity. This is what Romans 8, 3, and 4 is telling us, that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh on the cross of Calvary. He paid the penalty. 
that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Okay. The reason, so I'm going to say it again. The reason God sent his son was to take our penalty for sin, number one, and to bring divine strength to our fallen humanity. Number two, that we might fulfill, that we might obey God. I've already shared the statement from great controversy about those living during the time of trouble, Jacob's trouble, before our glorification, who aren't going to sin even in a thought. Uh, yet they still possess their sinful natures at that, at that time. So uh, this is what overcoming is all about. If we didn't have sinful natures, there'd be nothing to overcome. <laughs> I mean, if, if, we, if we weren't, if we're, uh, you're just going to sin until the nature is taken away, what's overcoming about? Uh, and we're going to talk about this a little bit uh, more tomorrow. But overcoming suggests that the power of Christ working in and through his people is more powerful than the nature of sin. First John 4, 4 says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Um, I believe that by the power of Christ, regardless of the fact that we have sinful natures, we can overcome and live obedient lives to God. So there you have it. Five fundamental pillars of last generation theology. And I only believe half of one of them. That's 10%, uh, which is not a passing grade. I think you understand that. So as a result, I figured out it would be far better for me to recant last generation theology than to flunk out of it. Um, the only challenge is I, I never held to these things I mentioned, the, the five tenets that I mentioned, and there's other things in the article, time permitting, I'm not going to go into the time to do it. But um, I've never believed those things. And there's just a lot of confusion. So if this is what last generation theology is, just don't count me in. Um, I don't want to be labeled with, with uh, a bunch of things that, that I don't believe in. Uh, because, well, if for no other reason, because it's confusing to other people that I try to communicate with and try to teach the gospel to. Um, there are some things in what we've looked at tonight that are, 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 are critical for our attention and, and, and raise some concern with me uh, in the times that we're living in that we're going to touch on tomorrow. There are two presentations tomorrow. The first one is entitled The Present Truth, um, and you're not going to want to miss that. And then the final one is called the harvest of life. And that's where, you know, somebody asks, okay, this is your second sermon you've done on Audioverse on last generation theology. And I mean, okay, so you agree, you don't agree, all these little things we nitpick about and what, what does it really matter? Tomorrow we're going to talk about what really matters and what doesn't. And there are some pieces that are being overlooked that are going to be critical to whether you're going to stand in the last days. So I want to finish up with that tonight. I want to thank you for tuning in. I want to thank you for your time. Again, it's good to fellowship with you. Uh, even though it's not in person, I look forward to fellowshipping with you in person again. But tomorrow is going to be video. And uh, tomorrow morning, um, the subject is the present truth. I'm going to finish with a word of prayer. And I think there are going to be a couple announcements. So let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, Father, as we have... Uh, study tonight as we've considered some of these things as I've, I've, I've shared just from a personal standpoint, uh, some things I 
believe and some things I don't. I pray that as we continue on in this series, it, it, it's not going to be about what I believe and don't believe, Lord. I want to turn our attention to what is present truth for the time we're living in. Father, I want to pray that everyone within the sound of my voice would be ready when Jesus comes again. And scripture is clear that there is a readiness that needs to happen and that not all are going to be ready. So again, I pray that those within the sound of my voice, the Holy Spirit would move on our hearts and our minds, that Lord, we would, we would uh, put our attention to studying uh, the truths of your word, uh, studying the messages of your prophet and understanding standing how we can be um, how we can fill the place that you have for us at this time in earth's history, how we can lead many other souls to Christ. And finally, Lord, we can rejoice uh, at your coming and we can bring our sheaves with us. We ask and pray all of these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.